Welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates women, forgotten and famous, who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. The show is recorded in front of a delightful audience here in Berlin, and on the podcast, we bring you a special selection of talks from these events. Dead Lady Show co-founders Katie Darbyshire and Florian Dowsons are here with me too. Hey there. Hello. Hi. It's our last show of the year, and we thought we should celebrate with some champagne, air quotes around champagne. (laughs) Other fizzy drinks are, of course, available. Here's to dead ladies. <laughs> There's more every day. So since it's holiday time, we're bringing you something festive on the show today. And if you're one of our German listeners, hello. Wir haben für euch eine deutsche Ausgabe als Weihnachtsgeschenk. Einfach diese Episode mal auf Deutsch. That's to say, as a gift to our German listeners, we recorded a German version of this very same show. Uh, and that's clearly labeled Deutsch Episode 28 or Deutsch Episode 28. So have a look for that to download if you'd like to hear us of Deutsch instead of of English. Indeed, it's it's our first ever. Lots of fun. A little bit challenging for some of us. <laughs> but let me tell you why we're able to offer this dual delight. So our presenter in this episode is Mary Sherpa, and she was talented and charming enough to do her talk twice for us in two different languages. Uh, Florian, please do tell us a bit more about Mary. Well, Mary, my dear friend, is a writer, an activist, and a creative director. Her website called Stiel in Berlin, or Stiel in Berlin, is the online source for um, great advice about where to eat in Berlin, where to go. Uh, she just launched a brunch guide, in fact, um, which is very helpful uh, if you've ever had to suffer like sweaty cheese. <laughs> you've buffet breakfasts, which are the worst. Bad pancakes. We can't have bad pancakes. We cannot have bad pancakes. She she has all the best pancakes, all the best eggs, any which way you would like them. Um, you can find it on her website called stielinberlin.de. This weekend, the 15th of December, she's also throwing the sixth edition of her annual clothing drive called Warm Up, benefiting Moabit Hilft, uh, which is a wonderful nonprofit assisting refugees here in Berlin. So check that out, too. Yes, Mary has a lot going on, and it's all pretty fabulous. Um, now, Katie, I think that you might know the lady that Mary is presenting here better than Florian and I do, or at least you may have encountered her first. So tell us a little bit more. So Mary's going to tell us all about Fanny Craddock, who was a TV chef, uh, a holiday standby and a a rather eccentric lady. Actually, although she is British, I only learned about her from Mary's um, talk, really. But of course, her heyday was a little bit before my heyday. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What I grew up with, though, in the UK was was a whole generation of of TV chefs who really reacted against what, what Fanny had done. Uh, and so they were they were trying to make sure they were as down to earth as possible. It was all kind of brown cord and lentils and um, nothing at all like Fanny Craddock. 
Yeah, Fanny is the opposite of brown corn and lentils, <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, she really had this remarkable sense of style, which you'll hear a bit about. But I mean, while you're listening, I would recommend that you go take a look at the pictures that we have on our website or just give her a Google. I would say Fanny's entire way of being was extravagant. Here's Mary with the story. So I'm not British. I'm uh, actually very, very, very German. So it might be a little bit surprising that I introduce someone like Fanny Craddock. When you are from Britain and you grew up with the TV, it is very likely that you know who she is. And you also usually have an opinion about her. Outside of the UK, however, she remains mostly unknown. Um, so as I said, the question is, where did I get the idea to introduce her here? Over two years ago, I co-founded the Feminist Food Club. It's a loose network of trans and cis women in, uh, working in gastronomy. And for one of our monthly meetings, I researched historical female chefs because my knowledge was also limited in that field. And that's how I found Fanny. She was a revelation to say the least. Usually female chefs, especially those on TV, present themselves as rather approachable, as the good housewife and or the caring mother. Just look at someone like Deliah Smith or Martha Stewart or Fanny's contemporary, Julia Child. Considering that sea of beige, it seems Paula Dean's hairstyles and Nigella Lawson's tight dresses are as extravagant as it is allowed in this profession. I witnessed this type of holding back in the Feminist Food Club myself when women who run big catering businesses or restaurants introduce themselves to the circle saying things like, I have this like small cafe and I do this like stuff. Uh, Fanny is very much the opposite. Modesty is not her style. She opens her autobiography, which is obviously named Something's Burning, <laughs> like this. We have covered half a million miles by car, train, and aircraft, and 14 countries have been our stomping grounds. We have eaten more meals in more hotels and restaurants than any other couple alive today. And we have long ago wiped the eye of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth I in respect of beds. We have sold three million words and books and articles alone, made around 100 broadcasts and over 70 television appearances. And we have graduated from an ancient Vauxhall 10 to a very small Rolls. It seems we are the only cooks in the world who have performed for 6,500 people at the Royal Albert Hall in London. Let's just stay with this for a moment. She performed at the Royal Albert Hall. In 1956, Fanny and her husband, Johnny Craddock, prepared an entire multi-course Christmas menu in front of, as I said, 6,500 guests in their very own Bon Viveur International Christmas Cookery Show. Mind you, in front of not four 6,500 people. And it went like this. Fanny, wearing a silk taffeta gown and a tiara, cooked in a show kitchen in the center of the hall. Celebrities were seated at tables around this kitchen and were then called into the circle to give the creations a quick taste. Which also means that the main part of the audience, just to repeat, who bought tickets came there just to witness this extravaganza. They never get any food. <laughs> the menu matches the setting. 
we see how Fanny shakes a bottle of bubbly, only to bury it underneath a pile of sauerkraut, on which Johnny then arranges two halves of a piglet to be doused in gravy by Fanny. Next, the champagne is cracked open and gushes over the crude composition. <laughs> After that, they garnish an oven-baked turkey with its original and raw tail feathers, wings, and yes, its head. For dessert, Fanny took inspiration from one of her biggest idols, Frenchman Georges-Auguste Escovier, and presented a pêche melba on an ice sculpture in the shape of a swan that weighs 36 kilos. <laughs> Here's a short video of that. And we come to what is probably the most misquoted, ill-represented, distorted source the world has ever known. Sauce Melba, which has nothing to do with port wine, red currants, stewed strawberries, or strange thickening, but is just fresh raspberries rubbed through a sieve. And with the sharp raspberry sauce to balance the sweetness of the peaches and the creamy ice, here is the master's classic dish and the last item on the first part of our program. It's, it's true, it's not made up. Up next is Fanny after a costume change into another shiny gown, explaining and showcasing the preparation of a souffle using her fake French accent. I think it's very exciting, not only, just to repeat that again, because most of the paying guests never receive anything to eat, but because of Fanny's stage persona, her impressive gowns, her strong voice, and her commands. She basically does everything herself. Fanny is famous for her, at times, forward and always quite dominant style, which until today is used to justify her ambiguous reputation. It's easy to find takedowns alleging her lack of talent and emphasizing her bullying. In 2009, TV show host John Walsh used the occasion of the 15th anniversary of her death to describe her like this. She had mad glittering eyes, the face of a supercilious horse, the maquillage of a French clown, and demeanor of a woman in constant search of an argument. She was rude to everyone, BBC colleagues, helpers, members of the public, fellow cooks, and her long-suffering partner, Johnny. <laughs> Much of her life was a lie, a cover-up, a delusion, from her date and place of birth to her marital status. It's not even clear that she knew much about cooking. Well, a man dissing a woman because of her loud and demanding ways isn't necessarily news. Yet, Fanny was one of the UK's biggest celebrities after the war, helping the British rediscover their love for cooking and indulgence all while wearing formal dresses and elaborate hairstyles. Phyllis Nan Sortain Pache was born on February 26, 1909, in Leytonstone, East London. Her mother, called Bijou, was an actress and only 18. Her father, a writer, was already 33. Her father's biggest success was a theater piece called Tons of Money, which gave the family exactly that, albeit for only a short time. In Fanny's memory, her father fell victim to the casinos, while her mother chose flamboyance. She preferred to start her days around 11 a.m. with a plate of oysters. 
Until she was 10, little Fanny lived with her grandmother, being educated in literature and ballet, violin and piano, hosting and cooking. All her life, she never failed to accentuate her sophisticated and allegedly French heritage gifted to her by her maternal grandparents. In these early years, she first learned to appreciate cigars and wine. Quote, my wine was pale pink at five, deep pink by eight, and often straight from the bottle when I went to school. At 10, Fanny was shipped off to boarding school, a terrible time of which she remembered. I learned nothing, forgot all I knew, and hourly hoped to die. She was kicked out of school at 15, met her first husband, a pilot at the Royal Air Force, and eloped with him two years later, to which her mother reacted as follows. No, you may not come home. I don't want any soiled doves in my house. Shortly after the wedding, the newlyweds found out that they were pregnant, but only two days later, the young husband died in a plane crash, not in any type of heroic maneuver, but during a routine flight in bad weather. Eight months later, Fanny's first son, Peter, was born. The next years were tough. Fanny had to make ends meet without the support of her parents who had gone bankrupt and gotten divorced. At 24, Fanny met her second husband, a construction technician, uh, got pregnant, married him, and left him to move to London and work in restaurants shortly after giving birth to her second son, Christopher, who stayed with his father and had to wait for 25 years before finding out who his mother was. At just eight years old, her first son, Peter, got adopted by his paternal grandparents, probably because Fanny had to lock him in at home while she went door to door selling vacuum cleaners or worked as a seamstress. Her relationship to both her sons remained, um, let's say, strained. Fanny married a third time, a fun-loving, handsome, and well-off race driver, this one. Uh, she later insisted she did it as a favor to him since he was actually gay, a statement his second wife uh, strongly contested. <laughs> this third marriage was even shorter than her second, since just days after the wedding, she met Army Major John Craddock, the love of her life, her fourth and final partner, and eventually husband. She annulled marriage number three with the race driver, who she actually wasn't legally married to anyway, because hubby number two, the construction technician, had converted to Catholicism in the meantime and did not agree to a divorce. <laughs> By the way, Johnny was also already married with four kids. His divorce was believed to have cost him around 75,000 pounds. Today, that would be over a million. It was worth it, though, as they stayed together till the end. She wrote, we met. I taught him to drink champagne for breakfast at 2 p.m., I helped him to discover the pleasure of kitchen raids for alfresco meals in the middle of the night and that snails and frog's legs were delicious. By 1942, Britain set war, but the army major was released early due to an eye infection. And they moved to the countryside where Fanny changed her name to Craddock so they can at least appear to be married. They set up shop in Snitterfield, a 1,200-soul community not far from Birmingham, where they lay the groundwork for their future success by hosting extravagant dinner parties. Fanny had a talent for clever and thrifty solutions. She bred rabbits, served ferns instead of asparagus, and baked hedgehogs in clay so they taste like frog's legs, or so she says. She also writes her first novels under the pen name Frances Dale, adopted from her grandmother's middle name. Most of her writing is more or less derived from her own life story. After the war, 
Fanny and Johnny return to London and renovate a South Kensington house ruined by air raids. She started panning a fashion column for the Telegraph under the name Elsa Francis and a beauty column using the name Nan Sautain. When she turned 40, she turned to cooking and published her first cookbook called The Practical Cook. In the spirit of the still prevalent strict post-war rationing, the recipe for the baked hedgehog is paired with tips like don't throw away stale sandwiches, dip them in batter and fry, they are excellent. In 1950, Fanny and Johnny started writing a travel column for the Daily Telegraph under the title Mon Viveur, in which they test restaurants and hotels and introduce the Brits to new and exotic dishes like the pizza. <laughs> a few years later, they start cooking for audiences. She showed up in a gown and a tiara, of course. He sported a top hat with tails, and they sold out venues easily. Just a year after they started, 20,000 people already enjoyed their presentations. But before Fanny felt entirely ready for the big stage, she had to take care of one thing. A producer once told her, you look so awful in pictures. She didn't disagree and consulted a plastic surgeon for a facelift. However, he insisted, there's nothing to lift yet. What's more, it wouldn't make the slightest bit of difference if there was. It's your nose that's all wrong, my girl. By the way, at this point, Fanny was 45 years old. It throws shadows all over your face. It brings your eyes too close together and it makes your whole face look like a current bun. So Fanny gets a nose job, but not only for aesthetic reasons. The doctor also promises more. You will become an easier person to live with when you lose your inferiority complex. <laughs> that came through always being conscious of your nose. And she remembers how clearly he had seen through me. To keep people from noticing that nose of mine, I had become a woman who talked fast and loud. I had become an eccentric in dress and manner defensively. Afterwards, the couple went through a self-imposed, gruesome and not really recommendable diet of mostly lemon, orange and grapefruit juice, but then they're ready. Against the fashion of TV cooking presentations of the time, Fanny wanted to add a little extra. She wanted to entertain. Thanks to her live shows, she was well aware that in order to do so, she had to cook for the back row. And this intention translates into her TV appearances. Dressed in fine garments, never ever in an apron, she insists, cooking is a cleanly art, not a grubby chore. She wanted to convince the most anxious housewife of the joy and fulfillment cooking can bring. The following years were the most important in her career, bringing her success after success. Even before performing at the Royal Albert Hall, she participated in a public cooking competition against the French three Michelin-starred chef Raymond Olivier. The occasion was his announcement that women do not know how to cook. They are incapable of inventing a dish. Fanny, obviously, showed up in front of the 40 press people and 300 guests wearing an embellished pink satin dress with a train. The jury agreed on a tie, even though Olivier later denied this and claimed he won, but Fanny had already won the hearts of the audience with her elegance. Even the royal family now knew who she was. Here we see her with Prince Philip, I think, uh, marveling at her skills at an exhibition. What followed were many ad campaigns for detergents, fridges, frozen vegetables, then a failed theater project and a successful record-breaking bit for which Fanny, Johnny, and their Rolls-Royce raced from London to Monte Carlo in only 16 hours and 19 minutes, her 
menu for car journey included bitter chocolates and sultanas in the boot for easy handling at speed, caviar brown bread sandwiches, as well as several thermoses of hot coffee laced with brandy. <laughs> Different times. <laughs> the Craddocks left their home in Kensington in 1958 for Blackheath in southeast London. While the snobby Kensingtonians despised her as nouveau riche, here they were considered quasi-royalty. Thanks to a kitchen renovation worth around what would be 50,000 pounds today, Fanny could now cook on five stoves instead of just three, and she invested a lot of time into gardening as an early adopter of the farm-to-table trend, which she called from garden to gourmet, and she used her Rolls-Royce to fell some trees. In 1960, her aforementioned autobiography was published and Fanny celebrated with an elaborate cockney-themed party at her house. She turned her kitchen into a fish and chips shop and herself into a cockney flower girl. Yes, that is her. Fanny then had to undergo multiple surgeries for colonic cancer. After recuperating in her favorite hotel in the Atlas Mountains of Morocco, the couple set out on the maiden voyage of their newly acquired 11.5-meter-long yacht, which instantly exploded on ignition. Both were sent to the hospital with heavy burns for months, uncertain whether they would survive. Fanny's recipe against the scars? Nivea cream. They turned their backs on London and moved to Watford, a small community one hour northwest of the city, into a place called Dower House. There, they enjoyed their own stream with trout and crayfish, a pool, a kitchen with nine stoves, and a marble dining table. And another revelation. Fanny's new BBC show was now shot in color. Colorful cookery was aimed towards both the, quote, girl living in the bedsitter and the harassed housewife with little time to spare. In 1975, Fanny was 66. Her now infamous Christmas cooking series screened on the BBC. Already th back then, it's my favorite scene, her decorating the Christmas pudding. Already back then, her style was quite nostalgic. Delia Smith was ready to take over. Her frugal and demure style seemed to be what the Brits were craving in the turbulent 60s. But Christmas is a special time for Fanny. She was the person who'd prepare the pudding a year in advance, buy all the presents during summer vacation, and send out over 500 holiday cards. A year later, Fanny committed what she called the biggest mistake of her life, which caused her to, which caused, <laughs> I didn't even see it and have to laugh, uh, which caused her to fall out of favor with her beloved audience. Invited as an expert on the reality show The Big Time, she was supposed to consult one of the amateur candidates in creating a menu for a banquet ce celebrating a former prime minister. When her assigned mentee, a woman named Gwen Troke from Devon, told her she wanted to serve a seafood cocktail, duck with brambles, and coffee pudding for dessert, Fanny could not hide her extreme disapproval. Now, what else is there? Last meal, what do they start with? Seafood cocktail. Yes, you see, it's mm. right. Mm. A seafood cocktail. Mm. And then straight into the duck. It's a, a three-course luncheon. Yeah. The audience did not appreciate her repeated eye rolls. 
Strange, considering today's TV shows are almost all based on the bashing of amateurs' ambitions and the celebration of memeable faces. Back then, though, the BBC received over 600 letters complaining about her selfish, condescending, and rude behavior. The candidate herself, though, was fine. Grand Troke's country cookbook was published the next year, pointedly including the coffee pudding recipe that had made Funny hopping mad. Most of Fanny's BBC shows were cancelled following this incident, but she continued publishing novels, kids' books, and, of course, cookbooks. A year after the grand debacle, the Craddocks finally got married, without further ado, under the assumption that husband number two, uh, you remember the construction technician, was deceased, which wasn't true as the Daily Express discovered two years later, by which time the real number two had actually died, so the only one troubled by this was the reverend who had illegitimately married them. After a quick move to Ireland, and another one to the Channel Island of Guernsey, the Craddocks returned to Essex in the mid-1980s. At the age of 82, Johnny died of lung cancer at the end of January 1987. Fanny could not handle his illness, neither visiting him in the hospital nor showing up at his funeral. 1988 saw her last long interview and she was confronted with the rumor that she caused so much suffering in Johnny's life, to which she replied, but it was all an act, darling. We used to practice beforehand. We were devoted to each other. And now that he's gone, I don't want to live. I walk with memories and they are so painful. Aged 84, Fanny died on December 27, 1994, from a heart attack. Her ashes were spread next to Johnny's. Research for a biopic discovered that Fanny had probably been taking pills, uppers and downers, all her life, especially amphetamines, which she used to suppress her appetite, since she was well aware that her public role did not allow any weight considered over the norm. The resulting film is called Fear of Fanny, in which Julia Davis plays her as emotionally fragile, antagonized, and constantly swearing. Fanny's second son, Christopher, had consulted with the production. The two books consulting me were obviously Something's Burning, Fanny's autobiography from 1960, and Clive Alice's biography, Fabulous Funny, from 2007, as well as countless articles and her innumerable cooking shows, many of which can be found on YouTube. For many years, Fanny and Johnny were the faces of the British Gas Council's ad campaigns, and in 1963, Fanny appeared in a 20-minute postmodern Cinderella story in which she teaches an ingenue how to cook. The ad is highly absurd. However, it's also 20 minutes long, so I'm just going to show a short clip. We're entering when the couple, which is, this is about, argues about the burnt dinner. Uh, but don't you worry, Fanny's on her way to rescue them. I just thought you'd like to see how to cook something properly, that's all. Properly? Darling, it's three months since we moved in here. We must ask Mum to dinner. I just thought... I don't care what you think. I'm not having your mother here criticizing the way I cook. That's not fair. My mother doesn't criticize. Oh, doesn't she, so? She's just always telling me what a good cook that creature you used to run around with was. That is not criticism. <laughs> Hilda is a very good cook. All right, then. Go and get her to cook in your fish fingers. Hilda wouldn't have fiddled with fish fingers. And Hilda wouldn't have groused about having my mother to dinner either. 
Mother to dinner. Mother to dinner. Mother to dinner. Janet! Oh, it's you again. All right, then, go on. Show me how to make a good dinner every night. My dear Janet, nothing could be simpler. All you need is a little knowledge, the right equipment. Come on, I'll show you now. Thank you. Mary Sherpa on Fanny Craddock, recorded in warmer days in the Hof at Berlin's Akkud. You can see more of that absolutely bizarre advertisement and some marvelous images of Fanny in action at deadladyshow.com slash podcast. So since we're on the topic of holiday eating, we thought we'd tell you about some of our favorite foods and rituals of the season. Yes, and we're even in the kitchen recording yeah. today, which which does make sense. It's perfect for, for Fanny. So everybody grab your glass. Oh, I already did. Yeah. did. Okay, all right. In my hand. Let's start with you. I grew up in Holland, so that's where I'm going for the holidays. Um, we'll do three Christmas dinners, 24th, 25th, and 26th. And on one of those days, we actually have a hunter um, who is attending, so we'll eat something he shot and killed. <laughs> Um, not on the day. I think it's coming, you know, it's coming from the freezer, so that'll be safe. Um, since he's been coming for quite a while, we've been experimenting with different things to do with these um, <laughs> poor dead creatures. Uh, in recent years, we've made uh, wontons. We've done, like, sausages. This year, we might go crazy and just roast it with some rosemary. Who knows? But in Holland and, well, in Germany as well, and some other countries... Christmas Day or Christmas Eve isn't necessarily the peak of the action, as far as kids go, anyway. Um, well, in Holland, our, our gifts happen way earlier, right? They happen for, say, Nicholas on the 5th or 6th of December, depending on which part of the country you grew up in. So generally, we don't have any gifts over Christmas. We just have lots of family movies on TV and... Uh, food. And food, just eating. Okay, Katie? So... I have a family Christmas in London every year with my sister and her now two kids and my kid and uh, uh, I luckily enjoy cooking because I'm the one who does it (laughs) (laughs) so it's fun except that you have to like try and remember okay who's allergic to this who doesn't eat that who won't eat bananas in their pancakes for some reason and if and if you actually reveal accidentally that there are bananas in the pancakes they suddenly don't like them anymore anyway um yeah so my sister and i will chop and cook and uh spend all day eating and then i will um stop doing any more work after lunch and everybody else has to tidy up which is the good part Okay, traditional dishes other than the chocolate orange? (laughs) Uh, British holiday food is uh, a little bit special. (laughs) People don't like it in other countries for some reason. So so we do have mince pies that have no minced meat in, uh, although there is some beef fat (laughs) involved, uh, which I really like. Then there's a, a Christmas pudding, which you make in like November and then boil it for four hours on Christmas Day. And it's a big round ball of brownness. Another one I'm not not actually super fond of. Um, There's so many raisins. Yeah. I mean, how many raisins do you need? You know? Yeah. There's a lot of raisins over Christmas, I suppose, because there wasn't any fruit on the trees. You know, <laughs> it's just winter food. Uh 
I think my favorite thing is actually because there's always some kids around is the present giving and the kids running around allocating presents to other people oh this is for you oh and this is for you mom this is from us this is that's my probably my favorite thing and luckily as the children get older it gets later in the day so it's no longer at 5 a.m so now it's i think we're going going about seven it's quite good that is better that is the advantage of getting older i guess (laughs) (laughs) yeah we haven't been having so many early christmases lately but um the one thing that i definitely miss in germany that we don't get and i'm from the states and i grew up in florida so it's green christmas all the way around Mm. Um, (laughs) but what you don't see here is eggnog you're making a face but it's delicious (laughs) (laughs) but it's delicious and it's not the same as eierpunsch like that's something else i was last night i was at the at the weihnachtsmarkt and i saw they were selling like it's like a warm eye punch, which sounds like scrambled eggs to me. That sounds yeah. horrible. Mm. No, eggnog should be cold. Okay. It should have rum in it. Mm. And it should have a heck of a lot of nutmeg on the top. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I did have some at a Christmas party on Sunday. You did? Was it good? Right here. It was not my thing. Okay. Well, maybe it wasn't made <laughs> right. Really tactful, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at least there are no raisins in it. Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, yeah. raisin so, drinks. Eggnog I miss. Candy canes you don't see too often here. What else? Well, we always had shortbread. My grandmother came from Scotland, oh. and so uh, we always had shortbread from her and fruitcake as well, sort of very traditional things. Um, and this year we are all going to Scotland together. More shortbread. More shortbread, possibly, and possibly also a Cludy dumpling, if nice. you know what that is. Is there raisins in it? I love a lot of raisins. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's also kind of like a steamed or boiled yeah. pudding thing. This, I guess these British sorts of puddings are they're kind of like a fruitcake that's yeah. then been boiled and possibly set on fire <laughs> with yeah. some alcohol just to make end. sure it's really dead yeah, yeah. So, so there are some similarities for people who've never encountered these things but the raisins are really hard to get past yeah i mean these raisins i like a raisin but that's just me <laughs> but do you I like guess. 1500 raisins in one day if you do, then come to the UK. <laughs> we got a dumpling with your name on it. <laughs> so thank you for that. That was fun. And um, everybody enjoy your own uh, cooking expeditions this season. And uh, we'd like to thank our friends who are supporting us via Patreon and everybody else listening in wherever you are. I hope you enjoy yourself around the table this winter. And don't be a tyrant in the kitchen and make like sure Danny. everyone has a full glass at all times. Um, our theme song, by the way, is Little Lily Swing by Tritachion. And we'll be back with another episode in January. Until then, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Dead Lady Show. Drop us a line and tell us who your favorite dead lady is and what you think of the show. And what you ate for Christmas. Why not? The Dead Lady Show was founded by Florian Dowsons and Katie Darbyshire. The podcast is created, produced, and edited by me. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Florian. And thanks to all of you. I'm Susan Stone. Cheers. (laughs) Cheers. Support for this episode of the Dead Lady Show podcast comes from the Berliner Senat.